mystery of the Ragged Stranger podcast. My name is Michael Hendricks, and I will be your host. This podcast aims to take a deep look at was one of Chicago's most famous crimes, a case of murder from 1920 that centered around the Ragged Stranger and Carl Wanderer. This episode is the seventh of an eight-part series, available for download or to stream on the Ragged Stranger blog at chicagonow.com. With Carl Wanderer sentenced to die on the gallows June 17th, for murdering the ragged stranger, he was not sent back to the penitentiary in Joliet, but was instead kept in Chicago in the Criminal Courts Building at 54 West Hubbard. Much like its replacement today at 26th and California, the Criminal Courts Building was not only a courthouse, but a jail. Unlike our current courthouse, though, there was also a death chamber with the gallows, and the men condemned to die on those gallows were kept together on Murderer's Row, as Death Row was known then. The 11 executions held by Illinois in 1921 were one of the highest totals ever in the state's history and ensured there was a constant flow of prisoners on Murderer's Row. The underworld that had earlier approved of the sentence to stretch Wanderer's neck later fell for his guile after Carl had lived among them on Murderer's Row. In a scene that stretches the imagination, Wanderer recruited a squad of killers to form their own prison military regiment. Needing props for their military maneuvers and drilling, Carl convinced jailer Lawrence Meisterheim to provide them, which he did. Picture this. In the bullpen of the Cook County Jail, a gang of seven convicted murderers awaiting their execution were given, by their jailer, broomsticks and mops to use in place of rifles as Wanderer drilled them through army maneuvers. Lining his squad up, Carl played the role of drill sergeant. Squad, squad right about! Right about. Forward, march. march. Private, Private Gary, Gary, hold, hold that, that pivot. pivot. About, About face. face. Snap, Snap into, into it, it Cardinello. Can't, Can't you find your left foot, Costanzo? Oblique into position. position. Don't, Don't sidestep into, into it. it. Lopez, Lopez, keep, keep your, your chin, chin up. up. Hands Hand salute. salute. In Wanderer's Jailhouse Army were Gene Gary, Harry Lone Wolf Ward, Sam the Devil Cardinella. Sam Ferreira, Joe Costanzo, and Antonio Lopez. An unnamed Murder's Row inmate, when asked why he joined up, gave his reasoning for enlisting. It's more fun this way than the ordinary, useless bullpen motions we go through. What's the use of them? We'll stretch soon anyhow. Despite this initial jubilation and enthusiasm for Wanderer's Army, before the week was out, the prison's pseudo-army unit disbanded. The war is over, was Gene Gary's reply to why he had gone AWOL from Wanderer's Army. Carl had made his now customary, Attention! Call one morning, but the six soldiers in the Legion mutinied and returned to their cells. The Battalion of Death was to march no more. He's too hard-boiled, was the comment of the lone wolf, Harry Ward. Addressing the 800-pound gorilla in the room was Sam Cardinella. What's the use of drilling to death before they hang me? For Cardinella, the hanging was front and center on his mind, as his execution was just over a week away. To Carl, it was good riddance, as he found his squad of cutthroats to be lacking discipline. Gary, he shuffles along and doesn't know his right foot from his left. Then, Cardinella quits in the midst of a maneuver to go and moan in his cell. There are a lot of bums. Carl's take on Gene Gary would be a precursor of things to come. That Gary guy is crazy. Sam Cardinella had one of the more interesting executions of anyone at any time. A feared Sicilian gang leader nicknamed Il Diavolo, the Devil, Cardinella and his crew had at least five murders to their credit. That isn't in much dispute. The rest of his execution? More than a few questions remain. Cardinella, in the lead-up to his execution, stopped eating, and was said to be in great despair over his coming hanging, which resulted in him losing around 40 pounds. The night of his execution, he was said to be a sobbing mess, crying and muttering in Italian while refusing his last meal. When it came time to head to the gallows, 
He collapsed and would not go willingly. In what was shockingly not the first or last occurrence of such a situation, since Cardinella wouldn't walk to the gallows, a wooden chair was brought to his cell, he was strapped to the chair, and then carried to the gallows. Still seated in the chair, the noose was put around his neck, and he and the chair were dropped through the trap and hanged. An odd execution, no doubt, but that is only part of the story. This is where it really gets weird, and a little hard to separate fact from fiction. Supposedly, one of Cardinella's henchmen, 19-year-old Nicholas Viana, who had been hanged in December of 1920, had been a trial attempt at resuscitation after an execution. It was said that Viana's body was quickly collected after his hanging, and was immediately put in a casket lined with hot water bottles and taken two blocks away from the jail, where a team of doctors and nurses were waiting to attempt to revive him. He was injected with revival drugs from a hypodermic needle, his wrists and extremities were massaged to get blood moving, and he was given electric shocks to jumpstart his heart. Supposedly, it worked. His eyes fluttered and he awoke, but as Cardinella was the gang leader and Viana was just a trial run, the revival attempts were stopped and he was allowed to expire. At least that's the story that's filtered down through history, more or less. The theory was that Cardinella losing all the weight and his collapse in his cell was all part of a plan devised so that he would be strapped to the chair. Less weight and a shorter drop by being seated would hopefully lead to death by strangulation rather than a broken neck, as it was believed strangulation could be overcome while a broken neck could not. After his hanging, Cardinella's body was quickly collected by his henchmen, but in their haste to revive him, a prison guard saw a nurse making revival attempts as Cardinella's body was being loaded into a truck and taken away. The guard stopped the truck and alerted prison officials who then held the body for over an hour to assure rigor mortis was setting in and he was beyond saving. New Cook County Jail procedures would be put in place after this event so that all executed men were held for such a period of time that any resuscitation attempts would be unsuccessful. It would likely have been a moot point in Cardinello's case as his death certificate lists his cause of death as a broken neck. What is a moron? That was a bizarre quest Judge Joseph David was on to find the answer to. Weeks after the Wanderer trial had ended, and apparently still exasperated with his encounters with the alienists in that trial, Judge David interrupted an unrelated trial he was on the bench for to quiz close to a dozen of the top alienists in the city about what the definition of a moron was. The judge was presiding over a trial where a man, who today would be said to have learning disabilities, was described as a moron. The judge was unclear on the definition of the term, and seeking to get a clearer understanding of it, the judge, without the prosecution or defense asking for this, subpoenaed a dozen alienists that had testified in recent trials to individually explain it to him. At least, that was what he told the alienists and the newspapers. Others believed, however, that Judge David was calling the alienists in for retribution to settle some old scores. For one thing, it was said that he resented the alienists getting paid by the prosecution for their expert testimony. By issuing a subpoena to the alienists, he forced them to appear in his courtroom gratis. Talk was also that the judge felt upstaged in his own courtroom by scientists flouting scientific terms and then explaining themselves to the judge and the court as though they had lesser minds than the alienists themselves. The judge did not like being shown up, especially in his own courtroom. So while he thoroughly examined the first alienist, Dr. Sidney Koo, another ten or so were left to wait in the hall until being beckoned by the judge. One of the subpoenaed alienists, who wished not to be named in the paper, commented, I understand the judge wants to get even with those who replied tartly to him when he asked questions during the Wanderer trial. I was told that he has a hypothetical question to ask us, that he expects our answers will vary, and he will show us up. Among the dozen alienists waiting to offer their definition of what a moron was were Dr. Harold Moyer, Dr. James Whitney Hall, Dr. Clarence Naiman, and Dr. Florence Fowler, all who testified in one or both of the previous Wanderer trials. You are an expert on mental disease, are you not, Dr. Koo? asked a judge. Well, I wouldn't say so. I have specialized in them, however, for about 30 years. Well, Dr. Koo, what is a moron? The term moron is not a standardized term. 
It means a high-grade imbecile whose defects are less on the intellectual side than they are on the moral or ethical sides. Oh, that clears that up, derided the judge. Doctor after doctor was called in and asked the same hypothetical question by Judge David, who heard the same answer in one form or another from one doctor after another. The waiting alienists had heard about the question and compared notes while the judge had them cooling their heels outside his courtroom, waiting for their turn to be questioned. After all the questions from the judge and all the testimony of all the experts, Chicago Daily News reporter Ben Hecht would close his story with his unsatisfied take on the matter. The question remains open. What is a moron? The Wanderer defense team filed a 50,000-word appeal to the Supreme Court in Springfield that was written by Mrs. Irene Lefkow with the intent of sparing Carl from the gallows. The tome-like filing was said to be among the largest ever filed in Chicago, as it detailed Carl's life and how he progressed from being an insane veteran who may or may not be guilty of his actions. The Supreme Court was expected to take a few weeks to rule on the matter, but ultimately, the appeal was flatly refused, and the court affirmed Wanderer's hanging date of June 17th. That is, barring intervention by Governor Len Small, a noted death penalty opponent. Having been sentenced to hang the same day as Carl Wanderer, Convicted murderer Gene Gary also had his appeal for a hearing to get a new trial, denied by the court. However, in ruling on another motion from the Gary defense team, the court ruled that it would allow for a new hearing to determine Gary's sanity. His attorneys had used an obscure 1845 law that stated, a hearing must be held for any convicted murderer awaiting execution if there is a possibility that the defendant, even after being declared sane at trial, had become insane in the ensuing time period between his conviction and his execution. Court observers noted that the law had only been used once since its writing in 1845, and that attempt had been unsuccessful in securing a positive outcome for the petitioner. The very next day, Wanderer's attorney appeared in front of the Illinois Pardon Board to file a similar motion for a hearing into Carl's sanity. Similar motions were expected from the convicted killers from the Abyssinian riot, Grover Redding and Oscar McGavick, and also from Harry Lone Wolf Ward. June 13th, days before a scheduled hanging, Judge David granted a stay to Wanderer, delaying his pending execution. Judge David, in reviewing the 1845 law invoked by Carl's defense attorney, ruled that the insanity hearing was compulsory when requested. Under the law, it is mandatory for me to grant this stay. The law itself is an old one and probably should be amended, but I must obey it as long as it is on the statute books. Not wanting to see the execution unnecessarily delayed, Judge David said, I will set this hearing for Thursday, and in the event the jury finds the defendant sane, I will resentence him within 48 hours. You are entitled to a jury, but don't make a farce of this trial. You can't prove insanity by saying that Wanderer bit a man or that he jumped over that chandelier there. You must confine yourself to insanity evidence since April 16th, nor must any reference be made to the crime itself for which Wanderer has been convicted. We have tried that case and will not try it again. Assistant State's Attorney John Terrell, the same John Terrell that originally been hired by Ruth's parents to defend Carl, voiced his opposition to the stay of execution and vowed to have the Supreme Court to take up the issue. In the last two weeks, two condemned murderers have taken advantage of the law, allowing a man a jury trial when his sanity is questioned. I suppose all the other convicted murderers waiting the news will ask for insanity trials too. June 16th, in proving Mr. Terrell correct, Lone Wolf Harry Ward had his attorneys file a petition alleging he, like Carl Wanderer and Jean Gary, had become insane since his conviction. Ward had been sentenced to hang for killing two men who had been witness to a lone wolf holdup of a haberdasher on South Cicero in September 1920. June 17th, the first date set to take the life of Carl Wanderer would pass with him still alive and breathing. June 20th, on the eve of the one-year anniversary of the date he killed his wife, Carl found himself back in Judge David's courtroom as jury selection began before his insanity trial. Half of Chicago's eligible voters would not be eligible to be on his jury, however. In another courtroom in the building, 
Judge Marcus Kavanaugh of the Superior Court dismissed a petition that would have seated women on juries in Chicago. Attorneys squared off in Judge Kavanaugh's court over the petition filed by Ms. Etta Berglund Eckberg, who argued that with women now being able to vote, they should be allowed to serve on juries. The jury commission, however, argued that the matters were independent of one another. Judge Kavanaugh opined that women have a privilege of a higher calling than that of jury duty, with those duties being home care and motherhood. If our women fail in the highest of all responsibilities, it will not so much matter what else is done by anyone to serve the state. However, the court will admit that to add the aid of feminine intelligence, wisdom, and experience might furnish a decided advantage to the administration of justice. Under the Constitution of this state, women are not eligible to act as jurors, irrespective of their right to vote. Until that is done, they have not the privilege and burden of sitting upon juries. It would not be until 1939 that a law was passed allowing women in Illinois to serve on juries. Carl again would face a jury made up of 12 angry men. In another courtroom, the Abyssinian duo of Grover Redding and Oscar McGavick were in front of a judge hoping to get the same stay of execution that both Carl Wander and Jean Gary had been afforded. Special Prosecutor John Terrell, in referencing Wander and Gary and others, called on Judge George Kirsten to reject the petition. This is a travesty on justice. The 11th hour attempts to obtain jury trials for the insanity of murderers are not made in good faith. The prosecutor found a sympathetic ear in Judge Kirsten, who dismissed their petition as insufficient and made in bad faith. The African-American men on Murderer's Row had used the same 1845 law as their white neighbors on Murderer's Row had, but they were denied. The same appeal that had worked in Judge David's courtroom failed in Judge Kirsten's for the black killers. This case took several weeks to try, and I paid close attention to it. There is no question in my mind that Redding faked insanity all during the trial. Redding was declared sane by the jury. After the verdict was pronounced, he became suddenly rational, and I heard him say, Well, I didn't get away with it. I've been acting up, but the jury was wise to me. Guess I'll have to hang. The law should be repealed or modified, as it is only a loophole now through which murderers sentenced to hang seek to escape the gallows. This court will not sanction such injustices. The official mandate of the Illinois Supreme Court released one half hour after the Abyssinian duo had had their death sentence upheld was found to support the contention made by Judge David that a jury trial was mandatory if question was raised to the sanity of a murderer about to be executed. The contention of the defendant's counsel that he was entitled to a trial by jury is clearly right and the impaneling of same is made mandatory. Under our statutes, the question is imperative, and the only method under which the question can be absolutely and unequivocally determined is trial by jury. No question of the guilt or innocence of the accused, nor any question as to whether he was sane or insane at the time of the trial and conviction is to be considered. Unfortunately for McGavick and Redding, that pronouncement from the Illinois Supreme Court came too late for the pair. Their hanging had been affirmed, and their execution would proceed as scheduled. The night before an execution, the convicted man would be brought to the death cell. About the only good thing about reaching the end of the line at the death cell was the last meal. Next door to the criminal court's building was the aptly named Noose Cafe. Joe Stein, owner of the coffee shop, provided the meal free of charge, only asking for a signed photo from the condemned man that would then be hung on the walls of the cafe. After months of jail food, where staples like butter or sugar were considered luxuries saved only for holidays, the meal was welcome, in spite of what waited after it. Grover Cleveland Redding and Oscar McGavick, after having had final meals of fried chicken and a porterhouse respectively, were taken to the gallows. If you have to go, you may as well leave them hanging, pardon the pun. One of the most interesting lines ever uttered on the gallows was said by Grover Redding, who considered himself a second Moses who would lead African Americans back to the promised land of Abyssinia. When asked if he had any last words, Redding replied, I have something to say, but not at this time.
The third jury to adjudicate Carl Wanderer was sat, and his insanity trial got underway. New Wanderer defense attorney Francis Walker told the jury of Carl's history and the historical progression of his slip into insanity. The defense was first to present their case, and testimony was provided by former lead defense attorney W.D. Bartholomew, who testified to Carl's mental decline and observing alienist Dr. Alexander Hirschfield examined Carl. Have you noticed anything queer about Wanderer of late? asked Walker. Yes. He told of hearing strange voices in the darkness. He recognized one as that of his wife, he said. He mentioned a fountain he had seen at the jail. Quoting Wanderer, he said, Sometimes, in the soft stillness of the night, a fountain played near my couch. From the sparkling waters, beautiful, black-clad women emerged, flirted a moment, and then fled. Their warm kisses upon my lips. Birds twittered. Strange voices penetrated the silences. He also asked me if I'd bring some clean clothes for his wife, as hers were all dirty. Did the doctor speak to Wanderer about the hanging? Yes, he said. God damn you, Wanderer. Don't you know you're going to be hanged? Carl said, no, God is with me. My trouble has all been caused by a battle between God and the devil. God is sure to win. He added that the devil was the chief cause of his trouble and that the devil was responsible for the jail being full. The next morning, Dr. Alexander Hirschfeld, city psychologist, took the stand with Assistant State's Attorney William Scott Stewart, cross-examining him. Now, Doctor, can you give me the symptoms noticed during your study of Wanderer? Dr. Hirschfeld answered. There are several reasons which entered into my final decision. I gave him the insanity test, and his reactions were sometimes bad. He lacks orientation. What do you mean by that, Doctor? Well, I asked him where he lived. He answered in a hotel. I asked him where he had been immediately after we left Judge David's courtroom. He said he had been to see King David, the man in the black robe. He had delusions. He saw fountains. He said his wife had gone to heaven and that he had talked to her. If Wanderer, slayer of his wife and the ragged stranger, is sincere in his comments that the devil is persecuting him and that he is staying in a hotel instead of murderer's row in the county jail, then he is insane and should be saved from the gallows. If he is lying to me, well, I couldn't form any opinion. Judge David could not contain himself any longer. Suppose I told you that I saw Caesar playing golf with John D. Rockefeller. Would you have any way of telling whether I was just joshing you or whether I was suffering from a delusion? No, I couldn't say for sure, Dr. Hirschfeld answered. The doctor then went on to recount his conversation with Carl the previous Saturday. Where is your wife? In heaven. How do you know your wife is in heaven? She tells me so. I see her at night before I go to bed and sometimes during the day when I'm in my cell, especially if I'm reading the Bible. But how do you know she's in heaven? Because she speaks to me in heaven. Judge David halted testimony to ask defense attorney Walker to clarify his position. The judge seemed incredulous that the attorney would imply that a belief in speaking to spirits in the afterlife would classify someone as insane. You don't mean to argue that because Wanderer says he saw spirits, he's insane. I cannot stand for that. Why, look at Sir Conan Doyle and Sir Oliver Lodge. You wouldn't say they were insane, would you? They are men whose sanity no one dares to question, and they believe in spirits. Until such theories are disproved, the world will have to hold them in respect. Dr. Hirschfeld resumed his recollection of his question and answer session with Carl. Do you know you're going to be hanged? They're going to take you to a scaffold and choke you to death? Do you know what that means? You murdered your wife and you're going to hang for it. Do you know that? Yes, it means I'm going to heaven. The next day, before the trial had barely gotten underway, all proceedings came to a grinding halt. The jury and the defendant were cleared from the court and a mistrial was asked for by the defense. The morning newspapers had quoted Chicago Chief of Police Charles Fitzmorris as criticizing the previous day's testimony from Dr. Hirschfeld. The chief was reported to have said what everyone in Chicago already thought, Wanderer should hang. Is there any reason why Chief Fitzmorris should not be summoned to this court? He may be in contempt of court if he has been quoted correctly, said Defense Attorney Francis Walker. Judge David largely agreed. 
There are too many public officials trying this case out of court. It is the duty of Chief Fitzmorris and everybody else to keep their mouths shut. These trials have already cost Cook County a large sum of money. Criticism of this case in print and by public officials has been a direct case of contempt of court. Firing a salvo at Assistant State's Attorney Stephen Mulatto, Judge David told him, If the hearing results in a mistrial, the State's Attorney's Office is at fault. It is the duty of the attorney for this community to see that no other trial this man, for any cause whatsoever, should be necessary. Defending himself, Mulatto said, I can't go out and stop the newspapers from printing the facts of public men from expressing their opinion. The judge had the jury return to the courtroom and questioned each juror individually as to whether they had read the morning papers or heard any of the comments regarding the trial made by Chief of Police Fitzmorris. To a man, the jury denied any knowledge of the affair. The jury was excused again and returned to their jury room by their bailiffs. After a recess, Special Prosecutor Mulatto informed the judge that after speaking to the chief, Fitzmorris denied making any comments on what the outcome of the insanity trial should be and denied saying Wanderer should be hanged. In response to the defense motion for a mistrial, Judge David overruled their request. If I thought this jury had been influenced by the newspaper stories, I would order it dismissed immediately. To the prosecutor, the judge was more blunt. Tell the public officials who feel inclined to talk to keep their mouths closed. It has already cost nearly $50,000, around 600000 in today's money, to try Wanderer, and it is a shame to waste the taxpayer's money when it may be necessary to dismiss this jury. The trial resumed with Carl's family testifying in his defense. Gone was the talk of Carl being crazy for years, and in its place was talk of Carl going crazy since being sentenced to die. Older sister Hattie spoke of her little brother losing his grip on reality. I have called on him twice since that day. I asked him about the sentence, and all he would say was, Well, if I hang, God will take care of me. I remained with him for about an hour, but he wouldn't answer any of my questions. All he would do is look at the lights and hold his hands up above his head. Twin sister Laura spoke of how Carl had beckoned her to the jail. He had told father he wished to see me. When I went to the jail, he asked me, What do you want? I don't want to see you. Chief Fitzmorris, reached by reporters late in the afternoon, was told of the fireworks that went off in Judge David's courtroom and contradicted Prosecutor Mulatto's assertion that Chief Fitzmorris had not been quoted accurately in the morning papers. I retract nothing. Wanderer ought to hang. If Judge David calls me into his court, I'll tell him that is my opinion. I repeat that if murderers continue to be released on insanity pleas, they are not half as crazy as the policemen who are working day and night to send them to jail. Defense Attorney Walker made note of the Chief of Police comments in another petition for a mistrial and said the terrorization on the part of the police, public, and newspapers had made it impossible for his client to get a fair trial. While livid, the judge denied the petition. In its stead, he named attorneys Clarence Darrow and George Miller as friends of the court and appointed them to investigate the comments attributed to Chief Fitzmorris. Turning his anger from the chief, he now focused it on Special Prosecutor Mulatto. The judge asked how he had been able to obtain a denial of the comments from the chief when the chief later took ownership of the comments as his own. The judge criticized the prosecutor and promised contempt of court charges should a similar incident occur again. After taking a well-needed recess for all parties, court reconvened after lunch. Dr. Dennis Russell opened the afternoon session with testimony explaining his examination of Carl a few days prior and his subsequent diagnosis finding Wanderer insane. Wanderer appeared to be listless, had no interest in what was going on, and was slow in responses. The alienist then made the mistake of mentioning Carl seeing ghosts and visions in his cell. Before he could finish his thought, he was cut off by Judge David. You aren't trying to discredit the spiritualists, are you? They declare spirit communication is possible. I'm not, I'm not trying to do that. I'm only considering that one symptom in relation to all the rest. I cannot believe that he is anything other than insane. While the judge again talked of noted ghost believers like Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, Special Prosecutor Mulatto leaned over to one of his fellow prosecutors and said that the trial was a farce. 
Defense attorney Walker overheard the comment and was all too willing to inform the judge of what the prosecutor had said. Defense attorney and prosecutor stood across the table from one another and fired insults like tattling children. Throwing his arms up in exasperation, the judge marched to the jury box, speaking to every juror to confirm that the jury had not heard the remark. It is my duty to maintain order and decorum in this court. If the unseemly wrangling of the attorneys is not halted, I will have to exercise my contempt of court powers. After being chastised in court for a second time that day, and with threat of being sent to the county jail, the prosecutor apologized to the court before allowing the defense to finish their case. With the defense case presented, the prosecutor called for their own expert to offer testimony for the state. Contradicting Dr. Russell's diagnosis was Dr. H. Douglas Singer, testifying for the prosecution that Carl was sane. Basing his diagnosis on observing Carl in court, he continued, Sufferers of dementia praecox show an unusual interest in everything that goes on around them. They are also very suspicious, taking little for granted. Dr. Singer, what have you observed about Wanderer since you've attended the trial? asked Special Prosecutor Mulatto. I have observed him yawn several times. He often stares around the courtroom. He glances at what persons are doing in his vicinity. He often spends his time making articles from strips of cane pulled from the bottom of the chair he sits on. He twists the strands around, makes little knots and loops, then he tosses them away. I have noticed him rise when the clerk struck the desk with the gavel at the end of the day's sessions. He smiles often. He moves around uncomfortably in his chair. He changed chairs twice in one afternoon. His movements seem to be graceful and easy. With testimony seemingly over from both sides, the defense shocked everyone in the courtroom. We are willing to put Carl Wanderer on the stand. Stephen Mulatto, the prosecutor, was not party to the idea. Impossible! If Wanderer is insane, as you claim, he has no legal status as a witness and could not testify in any court. Depriving the assembled murder fans of what would surely have been a spectacle, the judge agreed and would not allow the defense to put Wanderer on the stand. The following day would hear closing arguments from both the defense and the state before the case would go to the jury for a verdict. The insanity hearing that was originally expected to take a day or two was now almost 10 days old, with much of the delay being attributed to the circus-like atmosphere in Judge David's court. It wasn't long into Assistant State's Attorney William Scott Stewart's closing remarks to the jury before the animosity from the prior day spilled over into the morning's proceedings. Defense Attorney Walker frequently interrupted Mr. Stewart's remarks with objections and at one point evidently led to a charge that the prosecutor found out of bounds. You're a liar, countered Stewart. I don't propose to have such language used in my court, Mr. Stewart. You must apologize at once, Judge David ordered from the prosecutor. With mock humility, the prosecutor took a grand bow, doffing an imaginary cavalier hat. I apologize. I refuse to accept the apology, was Walker's answer. Turning away from the judge and toward the court fans in a quiet aside, the prosecutor said, That's what you get when you apologize. Unable to hear the comment clearly and mistaking it for something else, Judge David rose to his feet, shouting, Sit down! Sit down! You're through! This is too much! The judge cleared the court and called a five-minute recess to discuss contempt charges for Mr. Stewart. In the intermission, Mr. Stewart's full comment was explained to the judge, and seemingly satisfied it wasn't the comment he thought he had heard, the judge allowed him to continue on. Despite the histrionics of the trial, and while his defense made their closing arguments in a third attempt to save his life, Carl again nodded off and slept serenely in court. Wanderer's third and last time before a jury of his peers ended meekly. The jury returned their verdict in a little over an hour's time. Chief Clerk Ferdinand Scherer announced the verdict was unanimous. The jury found Carl Wanderer was sane on April 16th at his original sentencing, and he was sane now. Judge David announced a penalty. He is sentenced to be hanged by the neck until dead. Carl yawned and stood like a tired soldier as he was given the verdict. His hair was longer, yet thinner, than before. He was a bit more slight, but other than a few minor appearance differences, 
He took the verdict like he had taken the last one, stoically. His father, sitting in the first row behind him, the breath taken from the butcher, slid back in his seat. Judge David resentenced Carl to die by hanging on July 29th. The judge then stepped down from his bench and approached the jury. Leaning against the wooden rail of the jury box, he confided to them, I have received many cowardly letters concerning this trial, and also the former trial which was held before me. These letters were, needless to say, all anonymous. One writer even asserted that I had accepted money to delay the second trial, and also to delay the execution. Others sent threats, all in an effort, to make me forget my judicial position. Public officials gave opinions as to what should be done with Wanderer long before and during the trial. That is a dangerous situation, and I wish you to know that any interference with the freedom of the judiciary will bring about a grave condition. These reprehensible attempts to influence me, I need not tell you, were of no avail, and I am sure that public opinion and public vituperation have not influenced you either in your verdict. Carl was led from the courtroom and returned to a cell on Murderer's Row in the county jail in the criminal courts building. He was to die in four weeks' time. In the fallout of his comments during the Wanderer trial, Chicago Chief of Police Fitzmorris was given 29 questions compiled by friends of the court, Clarence Darrow and George Miller. The chief was instructed to answer all 29 questions and have them returned to the judge and his friends of the court by September 1st, in advance of a September 19th hearing, to determine whether contempt of court charges would be brought against the chief. The questions included verifying the authenticity of such statements like, It is a fine business. He isn't half as crazy as those coppers will be if they turn these fellows loose. It is undoing the work of my men for months back. No one doubts he committed a crime, and that's all we're interested in. As it is proved that he did, he should hang. They are trying to prove that anyone commits a felony is a little dippy. July 20th. While Carl was dreading his approaching execution, the city of Chicago was looking forward to his date with the noose. In an effort to tamp down the fervor over Wanderer's death, Sheriff Charles Peters had declared that hangings are, quote, not pink teas, adding, only the usual number of invitations will be issued. The sheriff refused requests from many prominent Chicagoans, men and women, who wished to attend Wanderer's execution. If people had their way, a hanging would be about as exclusive as a Union Depot. Extra, extra, read all about it. Governor Lynch Small indicted. Took $500,000 state cash. Grand jury charges embezzlement. Just over a week before Wanderer's hanging, Illinois Governor Lynch Small, Lieutenant Governor Fred Sterling, and co-conspirator Vern Curtis of Grand Park Bank were indicted for embezzlement, conspiracy to defraud, and confidence game charges. Small, first elected to the governorship in 1920 with the backing and support of Chicago's political machine, had been treasurer of the state from 1905 to 1907 and again in 1917 to 1919. The trio were alleged to have skimmed funds from public monies while Small and Sterling served as treasurer and deputy treasurer, respectively. The scheme was alleged to be that either Small or Sterling, in their role as Illinois State Treasurer, deposited in total what would be over $135 million in today's money into a bank that hadn't operated as a bank in over a decade and had no collateral to cover the state's money as it had no other customers. Their co-conspirator, Mr. Curtis, of the Grand Park Bank, would then use the state of Illinois' money to make short-term loans to two of the largest meatpackers in Chicago, Swift & Company and Armour & Company. These loans returned a rate of interest of 7-8%, but after taking their cut from the profits, the trio repaid the state of Illinois a return of less than 2%, cheating the state out of nearly $25 million. The governor alone was alleged to have pocketed nearly $7 million in today's money. The sad state of affairs was said to have been the first time in our nation's history that a sitting governor and lieutenant governor had both been indicted while in office. The Chicago Daily News set the scene of the political landscape at the time and the fight between Chicago and downstate. 
The grand jury action has made a breach in the Republican Party in a state that never will heal between the present leaders. This breach has been growing ever since Fred Lundin gained control of politics in Chicago and picked Len Small and made him his candidate for governor. The fight was then extended downstate. Politicians and others knew the election was stolen for him in Chicago by the City Hall machine. July 21st. With Carl's execution one week away, Governor Small, under the advice of his attorney, fled the governor's mansion for parts unknown and declared he would not allow himself to be arrested. The governor believed himself immune from charges while in office and said that submitting himself to arrest would set a dangerous precedent that he did not want to establish. Knowing various political factions would maneuver to attempt to place their men in the governor's mansion should both Governor Small and Lieutenant Governor Sterling be removed from office, the governor went into hiding. In an effort to clear his name and smear others, the governor had a letter he had written printed in the newspapers. I don't know all that much about Governor Small, other than a couple dozen newspaper articles I've read about him, but it's kind of frightening how some of his nearly 100-year-old letter feels like it could be written today by a current politician who believes his attorney general, members of his own party, and the press are conspiring against him. You, who elected me governor by the greatest vote ever given a chief executive in Illinois, are entitled at this time to a frank statement from me concerning the indictment returned against me today by the Sangamon County Grand Jury. For the present, may I not ask you to accept from me, with the same confidence which accepted my candidacy for governor, assurance to you that I am absolutely innocent of any charges which the public may consider brought against me by the grand jury. After a one-sided hearing, in which personal and political enemies were heard, and I had no voice. Attorney General Brundage, leader of the conspiracy, has succeeded in obtaining this indictment simply because of the personal fury I aroused in him, because I refused to permit him to take from the taxpayer's pocket one and a half million dollars for the upkeep of his personal political machine. I found it necessary to cut Mr. Brundage's appropriations $700,000. As I explained to you at that time, I had no hesitancy in doing this, because Mr. Brundage had been using your money not for the enforcement of the law or for the welfare of the state, but purely for his own selfish political desires. So, Mr. Brundage not only desired my political assassination, but he proceeded with the machinery at his hands to accomplish that fact. The Chicago Daily Tribune gladly lent the aid of its powerful press in the spreading of Mr. Brundage's propaganda. The Chicago Daily News, owned and edited by Mr. Victor Lawson, the tax dodger of record himself, rushed to the aid of Mr. Brundage and the Tribune. So, Mr. Brundage came to Sangamon County, the only county in the state where he had any hopes of securing an indictment against me. While it may seem amazing that any grand jury could do this thing, still, I'm not surprised that a Sangamon County grand jury, dominated by an organization protecting the most vicious criminals and brazen law violators to be found in the state of Illinois, has taken this action. I am absolutely innocent of every charge they make. They, better than anyone else, know I am innocent and that they can never prove the charges, which are simply brought for the purpose of character assassination through the public press of Illinois. The people of the state of Illinois elected me on the pledge that I would honestly serve them. I have served them to the best of my ability, saving them many millions of dollars. I will continue to honestly and faithfully serve them with every particle of strength and ability I possess. I am not afraid of the final verdict, which will come from you, the great people of Illinois. Signed, Governor Len Small. While declaring himself not afraid of the final verdict, he was afraid of capture in Sangamon County. The governor and members of his administration relocated to the friendlier confines of Chicago. If arrest came, he hoped it would be in Chicago, so that legal standing for the trial was in Cook County rather than Sangamon County. The governor knew a Chicago jury could be controlled and would likely guarantee his political survival. July 27th Not one to go out quietly, Carl released a statement professing his innocence. With Ruth as my witness, I am innocent of this crime that the state of Illinois claims I have confessed to freely and voluntarily. By making a confession against myself and placing all the blame upon myself, 
The people rose up against me for something I have never done in truth, but in words only. The state admits they have no motive. In order to condemn me, they had to manufacture false testimony. I am to blame for listening to their theory of the crime and signing my name to a so-called confession. But I could not do otherwise after being kept for three days and nights without sleep. I feel positively that after I pay my debt to the state with my life, in the near future I will be cleared of Ruth's death. How foolish I was to place my supreme faith and confidence in certain witnesses instead of God. One police officer suggested to me that I found my wife and the man and killed them both. I said I would rather say I killed her outright than try to demean her character. Think of the coward I would have been to say untrue things about a poor and helpless woman, a loving wife with a kind word for everyone. Had I did so, I would be a free man instead of a condemned criminal. I die loving everybody. My feelings go to the Johnson family very deeply. I await the day when the gates of paradise swing open to admit them to its joys. He closed the missive with a postscript. The reader must remember that I am not crying over spilt milk. I would be a poor soldier if I could not stand to be put to death by the people I fought for, my accusers knowing I never harmed Ruth. Too proud to admit the fact, but they will later on. July 28th The day before he was to be executed, reporters gathered around Carl's cell and found him to be reading Longfellow's Evangeline. He was awaiting transfer to the death cell to spend his last night before execution, and reporters found him jovial and singing a 1917 song performed by Van and Skank. The bells are ringing, ringing, ringing for me and my gal. The birds are singing, The reporters asked him how he felt. In the familiar wanderer bravado the reporters had seen time and time again, he answered, How do I feel? How do I feel? How do I look? That's my answer to that. I'm a soldier and I'm ready to go. When the bugle sounds, I'll be ready. While Carl was being moved from murderer's row to the death cell, his attorney, W.D. Bartholomew, went to appeal his case in Springfield under the expectation that the governor would be in the state capitol. The trip did not get off to a terribly successful start, though. First, the Division of Pardons and Paroles turned down the appeal from Bartholomew, with the board having said that Wanderer's sentence was appropriate to the crime. The Illinois Supreme Court then turned away any additional appeals for Wanderer's case, refusing to look into the matter any further. Bartholomew had assembled the Wanderer family in Springfield. The attorney gave the family the bad news that nearly all avenues had been closed. The only remaining hope was for a commuted sentence or a stay of execution from the governor. But Governor Small was now believed to be in Chicago and reported to be changing hotel rooms almost nightly to avoid reporters and arrest for his embezzlement charges. Bartholomew told the family to be prepared for the worst, making the trek back to Chicago to see Carl hang to death. And then, it happened. William R. McCauley entered the scene. The Illinois commander of the American Legion had been told that a possibly insane veteran of the Great War was about to be executed. Dr. James Whitney Hall, defense expert at all of Wanderer's trials, had previously been a major in the Army Medical Corps during the war and told McCauley that the horrors of war had warped Carl's mind. The doctor asked how could a man be executed after going insane for acts committed during the defense of his country. Macaulay agreed and drafted a letter to the governor pleading for a 60-day reprieve for Wanderer. If Wanderer is sane, he should be hanged. If he is insane, he should be locked up for life. Information has reached me which creates a doubt in my mind as to his sanity. I feel that if sufficient time is granted for you to appoint a commission to make a thorough examination as to his sanity, no great harm can come to the people of the state of Illinois. Every safeguard possible should be thrown around a man where the question of sanity is raised. The letter was presented to a sympathetic state Supreme Court justice, who then read the letter over a long-distance telephone call to the governor's son, Leslie, who was in hiding with his father at a Chicago hotel. While still on the call, 
The son relayed the substance of the letter to the governor by whispers in his ear. After a brief consultation with his advisors, the governor agreed to the request. He would grant Wanderer a 60-day stay, saving his life until at least September 30th. In the meantime, Governor Small would consider the appointment of another independent commission to determine Wanderer's sanity once and for all. And so it was that shortly before 5 o'clock in the evening, the day before he was to be hanged, Wanderer, like a cat with nine lives, learned he had cheated the gallows. He left the death cell, unlike few before him, knowing he would live to see another day. The governor's friend and advisor, James Graham, spoke to the press and expounded on the good fortune of Wanderer. Had the governor given in to the arrest, sought by his political enemies, he would not have posted bond, as the governor was innocent, of course, and rationalized that posting his bond would be a tacit admission of guilt, and sitting in a prison cell of his own, the governor would have been unable to issue the 60-day stay. Graham implied that the political maneuvers against the governor might have led to the state of Illinois executing a shell-shocked veteran. The governor's accusers would have had Wanderer's blood on their hands for not allowing Carl his due process. To me, it is inconceivable that the governor will submit to arrest while governor. The proposal that it is possible to arrest an incarcerated governor and thus deprive the state of its executive head is monstrous. The opinion was held by many that Wanderer's sanity had already been established, multiple times. Ernest Hodges, acting First Assistant State's Attorney, commented, We feel that Wanderer's case has already been properly adjudicated. He has been given a fair trial and found guilty by a jury of his peers. One jury found that he was sane at the time he committed the murder, and another decided only a few weeks ago that he is sane now. Whether it had been decided before or not really didn't matter to Carl. All he cared about was, I guess my wife will have to wait a while before she sees me. Again, the outrage of the people of Chicago could be read in letters to the editors of the city's newspapers. They were vehemently opposed to the reprieve. As a citizen and taxpayer, I wish to protest against the efforts of W.R. McCauley, commander of the American Legion, who was seeking to burden the state with another trial for Carl Wanderer, who had been found guilty of two different murders and was proven sane. Macaulay's actions are a menace to law and order. Signed, R.W. In this morning's issue of the world's greatest newspaper, I read that the arch-murderer Carl Wanderer has been granted a 60-day stay by Governor Small. I want to ask if Mr. Macaulay acted on his own responsibility or did he have the sanction of the post which he so ably misrepresents. As a soldier of the Great War, I don't think that his actions will gain many new members of this order. No wonder Charles Fitzmaurice is peeved when even the local Legion head tries to undo the work of the Chicago Police Force. Signed, A-H-X-A-E-F. William McCauley, the Illinois commander of the American Legion, and the man that had created this brouhaha, offered a meek defense of himself. I was placed in a most embarrassing position. I was told that I was the only person who could keep an insane person from being hanged and that the responsibility was on me. I decided to act. I was told by authoritative witnesses and the alienists who testified in Wanderer's behalf that Wanderer was insane. So, I petitioned the governor. Knowing he had one last opportunity to beat the rope, Wanderer gave it all he had to show people he was crazy. The day after he'd been given his latest reprieve from the American Legion, Carl was at various times howling, shrieking, banging on his cell bars, and holding conversations with imaginary people. His fellow murderous row inmates egged him on. Just keep going, and you'll make yourself believe you're insane. Carl's jailers let him go about growling and talking to himself for a bit. When the clamoring on his bars had gotten out of hand, his jailers approached his cell and had a quiet word with Carl. He could behave and not act crazy, or they would put him in a straitjacket and put him in solitary confinement, he was told by his jailers. Carl ended his crazy act, at least to his jailers. The first arrest of a sitting Illinois governor happened a bit after 5 o'clock in the evening of August 9th. It was the final act of a day that the Chicago Daily Tribune called the most farcical of the nearly three weeks that the governor had played hide-and-seek to avoid his indictment. The governor had hidden out in Chicago for a couple weeks, before returning to Springfield, 
where he had managed to sneak into his office in the state capitol building without getting arrested. When told that the governor had returned, Sheriff Henry Mester called in a half dozen of his deputies and staked out all entrances and exits for the state capitol. A semicircle was formed by the governor's supporters around his office door. An older gentleman with white hair and a white goatee, presumed to be a Civil War veteran, told reporters, If they try to harm the governor, they've got me to lick. Realizing the growing crowd of onlookers was increasingly holding both men out to be acting like children, the sheriff and governor agreed for a face-to-face -face parlay in the governor's office. With 40 people in tow, the sheriff made his way to the executive office. After the governor and sheriff both spoke of their mutual desire to avoid a fistfight with each other, both men agreed that the governor would go home for dinner around 5 o'clock and the sheriff could arrest him then at the governor's mansion. The governor was then given what would be known today as a perp walk. In addition to all the reporters and onlookers who had followed the sheriff from the courthouse to the governor's mansion, the numerous police cars out front told the casual passerby that something was going on. Crowds were said to be encircling the mansion before they formed up on either side of the governor's driveway like they were waiting for a parade. Flashbulbs popped as the governor was put in the sheriff's car and slowly driven down the driveway before heading to the courthouse. With a month having passed since the 60-day stay had been issued, Carl bided his time without word from the governor on appointing the insanity commission that had been requested by the Legion and Macaulay. September 1st, Governor Small visited Chicago and met with a defense attorney for his upcoming embezzlement trial. Speaking to reporters after the meeting, Small said, I have not even thought about the indictments against me for the last two weeks. I have been too busy with executive business. While making no mention of any plans to convene another insanity board to review Wanderer's case, Governor Small laid out his short-term plans. If nothing interferes, I will be in Petoskey for two weeks or more. Mrs. Small and the rest of the Small family were already on their way to start their vacation in the Michigan resort town, and the governor intended to join them that night. With weeks having passed and no insanity commission appointed by the governor, even the prosecution was getting antsy, and they didn't have their neck on the line, so to speak. Assistant State's Attorney Edward Day fired off a terse letter to the governor, reminding him that a 60-day stay was nearly up, and the state would need to prepare for such a hearing if one was to be forthcoming. Otherwise, he informed the governor, the stay would expire on September 30th, at which time the state would proceed with the hanging of Carl Wanderer. Extra, extra! Chief of Police Fitzmorris is guilty! The newspaper headline September 20th totaled the fallout from the chief's comments that he believed Carl should hang, that insanity trials were a joke, and that coppers would go crazy themselves if all their work was undone by insanity claims. Judge Joseph David had reviewed the 29 questions and answers that the chief had supplied to friends of the court, Clarence Darrow and George Miller, and found the Chicago chief of police guilty of contempt of court. The verdict was a very reluctant one, though, as the judge gave the chief every opportunity to show some contrition and back down. The judge clearly did not want to render a guilty verdict on the Chicago chief of police. In a 45-minute speech, the judge reviewed the facts surrounding the Wanderer case, the widespread talk and gossip in the newspapers about the case, and the judge's duty to shield the jury from it. The judge spoke of what Americanism is and decried the lack of value placed on human life and property. The judge told of his role in, quote, keeping the fountain of justice pure, end quote. Concluding, the judge said, I find nothing in the attitude of the respondent, Chief Fitzmorris, to show that he did not mean to embarrass the court by his statements in the Wanderer case. This matter is regrettable, for whatever finding the court makes, the court expects to be criticized. The imposition of a fine in this case would mean nothing. Whatever way the court moves, it will be charged with acting with malevolence and prejudice and out of spirit of revenge. The way to enforce respect for the court is to make the penalty such that the defendant, who is intelligent, will understand the significance of his act. It is anarchy to spit upon the law. After the judge found Chief of Police Fitzmorris guilty of contempt of court, he sentenced him to five days in jail and gave him a $100 fine, about $1,300 in today's money. The judge, in his sentencing report, gave the chief the option of not having to pay the fine. 
All he would have to do is serve 90 days in jail in lieu of the fine. A final appeal before the Division of Pardons and Paroles was denied in Springfield September 26th. Another last-minute stay by the governor would again be Carl's only hope. The next day, the governor announced he would hear one last appeal in order to spare Wanderer's life. When asked if he was getting nervous as the execution date approached and his last hopes fell by the wayside, Carl answered, Why should I worry? I'm innocent. With one last chance to save his client, Warren Bartholomew pleaded with Governor Small for Wanderer's life. I will submit records in this case to any reasonable man, and the answer can only be that this judicial murder, if it is carried out, is wrong. Joining Bartholomew in defense of Wanderer were Army veterans Captain Oscar Carlstrom, a member of the State Tax Commission, and Captain Arthur Poorman, mayor of Marshall, Illinois, who both had some interesting observations. Captain Carlstrom told the court, I am speaking from the standpoint of a lawyer. The records of this case were shown to me three weeks ago, and it is upon them that I want to present my reasons for asking executive action at this time. Carl Wander is but an incident in this issue. In reading the records, I feel Judge David's conduct, in particular his method of cross-examining witnesses, is open to criticism. Mayor and former Army Captain Arthur Poorman told the governor, I am of the opinion that in four or five months, the real facts in this case will come out. The state's attorney knew all the time who the ragged stranger was. Give us 60 or 90 days, and we will get into the Supreme Court. Of course, the state was there as well to have their say at the hearing. Assistant State's Attorney Lloyd Hath tried to be the voice of reason when he had his chance to address the governor. There is no question of his sanity. He has had more chances than any man in our courts. We can't go on forever like this. It is making a mockery of the law. Bartholomew argued his own legal points, trying to raise the issue of double jeopardy. The Constitution has been violated in this case. Wanderer was sentenced to 25 years imprisonment for murdering his wife because the jury did not believe he was insane. We all know that Wanderer's second trial was really for the murder of his wife and not the ragged stranger. He was twice placed in jeopardy for the same crime. Time will prove that I am telling the truth. When all else fails, beg for mercy. Wanderer's service as a volunteer soldier in the World War should be an argument for mercy. Carl Wanderer, from the time of his arrival on this earth, never had a chance. One person not having much more to say was William McCauley, Illinois commander of the American Legion. McCauley telegraphed the governor to make the Legion's position explicit. Any legionnaire asking for a further stay of sentence is acting on his own initiative and has no authority to represent the Legion. Commander McCauley told reporters, I interceded to give Governor Small a chance to appoint a commission to look into Wanderer's sanity. When the stay of sentence was granted, that automatically let me out. The naming of the commission was a duty devolving upon the state's chief executive. He had two months to appoint the commission and took no action. The matter is not one in which the Legion should take action now. Governor Small listened to all the testimony and took it under advisement. He would make a decree the following day as to Wanderer's fate. On the next, The Mystery of the Ragged Stranger, which will be our last and final episode, a conclusion to the Ragged Stranger story. Thank you for listening, and thank you to Edgar Ramos, Matt Schwerha, and everyone in Chicago now for their help in producing this podcast. This series is made up of eight episodes, and our next episode, number eight, will air on Monday, October 1st. We're going to leave you with a song called The Butcher's Boy by Buell Casey. The song is being heard courtesy of June Apple Recordings in Whitesburg, Kentucky. Enjoy. She went upstairs to make a bed And not one word to a mother her mother, she went upstairs to Says, daughter, dear daughter, what troubles you? Oh, mother, oh, mother, I cannot tell that 
that railroad boy I love so well. He's courted me my life all the way, and now at home he will not stay. Railroad boy goes and sits down. He takes that strange girl on his knee, and he tells to her what he won't tell me. Her father, he came in from work. And said her daughter, she seems so hurt. He went upstairs to give her hope, but found her hanging on a rope. He took his knife and cut her. Oh, uh...